Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Hey, Mike. So the big thing in, in corporate communications and really uh, a big story over the past uh, weeks has been this uh, business roundtable statement. You know, the business roundtable is the um, American CEOs, the organization, and they put out a statement signed by 181 CEOs on corporate purpose. And what caused this kerfuffle is that shareholders, share owners, how we refer to them, sort of got downgraded in the ranks of, of corporate stakeholders. Uh, some, even the Wall Street Journal, complained that uh, investors weren't mentioned until the second to last paragraph of the statement. But it broadened the social purpose or the purpose of companies to say that all stakeholders share equally um, in our our. Uh, what we plan to do and the social value that we hope to deliver, uh, suppliers, um, you know, employees, just go down the line, communities, countries. Mm-hmm. And so it's been, I-, I thought the statement was kind of vanilla, but, and, and it got a reaction that I was surprised by both pro and con. What's your view on what BRT did? Well, you, you know, in, in one sense, uh, Companies and, 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 and don't really need permission from the business roundtable to be better corporate citizens. And yeah. there are clearly are organizations, organizations you and I have both worked for, uh, that at times are really focused on very specific things. And, and I see why you and I might look at this and say, well, this is kind of plain vanilla. But I do think based on uh, what the average American is seeing and based on the continual flow of crisis in corporate America and the inability seemingly to have that soft touch with so many different stakeholder audiences has, has, has really prompted the business roundtable to say, you know, we need to do something and we need to say that we have value. And that we care about all of society and not our, just our investors. Uh, so I think it's important, even though we might, uh, some of us look at it as a little bit plain vanilla or oatmeal. Uh, but the other side of it is there's a reason why it happened. And because of that reason, um, my guess is that more companies are going to have to show uh, uh, actions that relate to this statement more than simply adhere, you know, talk about or provide messaging that's akin to that statement. Right. And indeed, already, since the statement came out, there are groups out there uh, challenging specific businesses who signed on to say, okay, uh, you know, signing the statement was one thing. But now we want to see what you're going to do to deliver value to all these stakeholders. So it does raise expectations. Well, and there's also that uncomfortable thing that if you're one of those uh, CEOs that signed this and all of a sudden there's a bad headline for your company, because um, this, you know, well, you said this, but now you've done that. You know, I'm sure, you know, that, uh, you know, Alex Gorski uh, you know, he's probably a signer of this document. And then Johnson & Johnson gets a bad judgment in the news. Um, so we'll see more of that kind of commentary. I don't know that it's totally fair. Uh, but that said, uh, you know, I, I, I do believe with the school that, um, you know, I, I'd rather have you be in a position where you walk the talk and not just talk. Right. And we'll get back to J&J in a minute, but the one thing I wanted to point out about the naysayers here, the critics, is uh, particularly the Wall Street Journal editorial page, which is very influential in business, and the reason I mention it is that they have, you know, they see all things through a political lens, and uh, they feel, or they stated in their editorial, that executives might have signed on to this because they feel targeted 
by particularly some of the Democratic candidates, Elizabeth Warren, Senator Warren, for president, and, and so they want to get out ahead of it. My view is that uh, maybe that's part of uh, the motivation for doing this, but CEOs have begun to see and respond to changes in stakeholder expectations, particularly yeah. among employees who want to work for a quote-unquote good organization among investors uh, who want to invest in a purpose-driven organization among communities. I mean, you go right down the list, and to say this is just political um, throws all of that social phenomenon that's happening that is real, um, it discounts it, right? And, right? and I think that that would be a mistake uh, to to sort of pigeonhole this as a political reaction. Right, and, and so, I think, you know, for, for a long period of time, right, if you go back to like the 1960s and 70s, there was lots of thought, there were lots of thought pieces that essentially said corporations need to put shareholder returns first, you know, yeah. period, end right. quote. Um, right. And major I worked for one. That I position worked for Jack. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so in some ways it's refreshing uh, to see an organization, you know, look at this differently and more broadly. And, and clearly it's, it's kind of our life's work, so uh, it, it certainly yeah. means a lot to, <laughs> to those of us, even though we might look at it as plain vanilla. Exactly. So let's get back to J&J, and I think you're right to raise it in this context with, you know, a judge in Oklahoma has uh, issued a half a billion dollar judgment against J&J, saying it was uh, misleading um, in its marketing and statements about the relative dangers of its opioid product. Now, this is part of a process, sort of a prosecution, if you will, of... um, pharmaceutical companies who provided opioids in Oklahoma and the damage that those opioids have done socially and emotionally and physically to people there. Two companies settled. Uh, I think Purdue was one of them before J&J went to trial and, and got this judgment against them. And we've talked about this um, before. Now, J&J's defense, they're going to appeal. They provided only 1% of the opioids in Oklahoma during the period under in question. Um, you know, they provided patches and crush-proof pills, which are more difficult to, to sort of black market. But, Mike, boy, it just seems like on these complex issues in a courtroom, whether it's a judge or a jury, it is really difficult for big companies to prevail, uh, whether it's the science or whether it's, you know, it's a moral issue or ethical issue. What's your take on the latest um, J&J verdict? Yeah, well, and, and you also look at the, the, the size of the judgment, right? More than a half billion yeah. dollars. Um, and, and, and given sort of the facts that it seems to be out of place, um, you also have a situation where um, in, in some ways the argumentation, sadly, uh, seems to almost rest in some vein, almost like the tobacco cases, uh, which yes. are, are, are different because here you have a product that was created to help some individuals. And then you had individuals using that same said product for different uses. Uh, mm-hmm. and, so there, there are lots of issues at play here, but I think the bigger issue is that societal one where uh, people don't easily listen to science. They don't easily listen to logic. And if they think uh, large numbers of people have been harmed, uh, you could get judgments. Uh, by a jury, you could get judgments in some cases by even judges that maybe uh, we need to find fault here. Uh, but the question of balance, you know, we think about justice. I always think about that 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 symbol of the scale. Scales. Um, yeah. I, 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 I think that is there culpability? Probably there's some culpability for some number of companies in this space for 
how they promoted the product, how they didn't uh, provide uh, adequate information around uh, the the risks uh, of, of in, ingesting such a drug. Uh, but on the other side of it, there seems to be some, there should be some culpability for people who opted to take it who didn't need to take it. There should be some culpability probably for if there were doctors who prescribed it in situations where it was unnecessary. Uh, It seems that there's a whole cast of players that are to some degree culpable. And the risk here in society is that what we're going to do is we're going to go after the, the players that we know who have deep pockets Yeah, Yeah. they become the easiest target, and that's unfortunate, because I don't think that that is the nub of the problem. Right. And, you know, J&J is operating in an industry here, the others, that is largely distrusted, right? The pharma industry, whether, you know, I'm not saying that's just or it's deserved, but, right. uh, you know, most people recognize or inter- interact with drug companies or think about them based on the price of these miracle yeah. drugs. And these are miracle drugs um, that save people's mm-hmm. lives and extend lives and all of that. But again, it's this explaining what the co- why the cost is as high as it is based on the billions of research that went beneath uh, into the drug and then explaining the science of human reaction to those drugs, good and bad is complex, nuanced, uh, et cetera, and we have just sort of washed nuance out of the system. And so CCOs and the lawyers that work with them, boy, I I would be really hesitant to go to trial on one of these uh, these days because it's just tough. Now, now, so that's that's uh, an issue we'll watch and continue to talk about on the crux, but I really want to close out this week by talking about the most important business story of the week, which is, you know, the chicken sandwich of Popeye. Oh my uh, God! This is <laughs> this is a phenomenon that I can I can barely even you know uh, understand. But you look at uh, what's going on here. I you know people telling me they're waiting in line for an hour for these. I guess there are two chicken sandwiches. There's not a Popeye near me, so I haven't been there. But the food website Thrillist called the sandwich yeah. a tiny miracle. The New Yorker yeah. seemed it fantastic. Uh, more than yeah. 40,000, you know, Instagram posts, all for a $4 sandwich from Popeye's. Now, I have, uh, I understand that you have tested this product, and I'd like to know what you think. Oh, I, 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 so I have a, a home in South Carolina, and in this small town that I live in, uh, you know, they preach at the altar of fried chicken. And the uh, my wife has made comments. She's grown up in the. I mean, she was born in this small town. And we go down the road on Broad Street, and what do we see every day? We see these huge lines uh, in front of Chick Fil A, both in the morning and in the <laughs> afternoon. And now, now that now that you've got Popeyes coming out with their two sandwiches. Now some of that line's peeling off, and now there are long lines also at Popeye. <laughs> so, uh, so I actually did go good for them. Sandwich and, I, and, and I've tried the the, the trick Chick Fil A, and uh, you know they're both good. They're both good. Uh, are, are they worth waiting in lines for? I don't think so. Um, all of that said, it's a wonderful phenomena, and uh, yeah, you know, we're talking about the, about the pharmaceutical industry. My guess is doctors will make out in the deal. Well, here, see, now, <laughs> that's great. Now, listen, you get crisis management, you get, you know, talking about serious issues, you're on the crux. We also do food reviews. So, you know, we're <laughs> multi-purpose uh, podcast. Listen, Mike, yeah, thanks for another great week. Thank you, and, and, and know for certain, whenever you go for these sandwiches, ask for extra pickles. Extra pickles, that's the key. That's what I've heard. That's, that's from a nutshell. That's from South, South Carolina. Okay. Another great crux, and we'll talk to you all again next week.
Today we are thrilled to have on the crop someone who knows crises better than many of us know breakfast. Uh, Karen Doyne, for 16 years, led the U.S. crisis practice for my alma mater versus Marsteller, and she has seen it all and done it all from litigation communications to issues management, from major product recalls to disaster responses, government and regulatory battles, executive misconduct uh, allegations, data breaches, uh, community shootings, you name it. When it comes to crises, she is a pro's pro. In short, Unless you are her friend like me, he is the person you and your company hope you never have to call. But if there is a crisis or one brewing, you definitely want her on your side. Karen now runs her own company, Doing Strategy. Karen, welcome to the crux. It's great to be here. Uh, so you started out as a reporter. You became press secretary to a U.S. Senator David Durenberger. Uh, um, Moderate from Republic, uh, a moderate Republican from Minnesota. It's almost hard to say moderate Republican anymore. Uh, when politics did not seem quite like the daily crisis it seems today, tell us how you came to get involved in uh, the business of counseling clients through crises and becoming one of those go-to people when major crises hit. I, I'm glad to. I and it was it was in many ways I think a kinder, gentler time on Capitol Hill, uh, Boy, but, <laughs> but, but I, I do remember that I, I had to manage, you know, a number of very difficult situations uh, as press secretary, um, and when I left the Hill, I went to Fleischman Hillard, which had just opened its D.C. office. I knew them because they're based in my hometown of St. Louis, and began managing uh, difficult issues and crises from the corporate level. And at that, by that time, I had seen it then from, from the media side, from the political side, and from the corporate side, and, and had come to really appreciate how incredibly important communications is to managing difficult issues. And, yeah. uh, that's really when I got the bug, I would say. Um, later, in, in later years as well, I had a mentor who, who was uh, terrific at crisis communications, and, and he encouraged me to delve more into the science and the, the psychology, the sociology, even the biology of, of crisis perception and risk perception and crisis management. And, and that is, is just a, a fascinating world. I think the ability to become sort of the student of crisis management uh, really, really cements uh, interest in, in navigating that very challenging world. You know, because people's sensitivities are in a heightened sense then, right? And there's also some people recoil and don't want to be engaged in the crisis, even though their organizations are in the midst of that. That's right. And, and the way that, the, that outsiders perceive it uh, varies. And there's, you know, there's, still, there's still debate in the, in the scientific community about whether when we make a decision in a crisis, whether, whether we're just thinking faster, or whether we're really thinking different, uh, with a different part of the brain, if you will. And that really has implications as well. Hmm. Well, Karen, this is Gary Sheffer. Welcome uh, to the Crux. Thank and, you. Uh, I, and I, I'm glad you mentioned the word student, um, because I do teach at Boston University issues in crisis management. And I'm not, I want to ask you about that before we finish here with you today on what you would, what kind of advice you would give to students of crisis management today or some of the students that I, that I teach. But, and I love this idea of delving into the science beneath the art, if you will, of, of managing a crisis. And as we know, things are changing so fast today and the environment is so different. I, I want to ask you about a specific thing that's happened recently was when the Business Roundtable put out a statement of purpose on the corporation, 181 CEOs signed it, um, and 
the point they made was that all stakeholders, employees, suppliers, customers, society itself, are just as important as shareholders. Now, I work for a company, you know, and for a CEO, Jack Welch, that probably created the primacy of shareholder theory, you know, providing a maximum return to your investors. And this statement put out by the BRT, I, I actually thought it was kind of vanilla, but it got a big reaction on both sides. The Wall Street Journal trashed it, uh, the editorial page trashed it. Yeah, that was interesting. And, and, and so does, do those kinds of things uh, mean the statement and the response to it, does it put businesses these days on the road to reputation recovery or does it create so much risk to heightened expectations among stakeholders that it creates reputation danger? What did you think of all of that? Well, that's a great, big, hairy question. Um, and and it is, I, I thought it was really fascinating um, and that, that the Wall Street Journal couldn't even find one one positive thing to say about it. But uh, it's... Well, well, interesting thing. I don't mean to interrupt, but I thought they were sure. kind of cartoonish. It's kind of cartoonish to, you know, sort of heck with, you know, the changes in attitudes among society and employees about expectations for corporations. Um, so I, I sort of think they were sort of a, they're an outlier to a certain degree. But I, I'd love to hear your point of view. Sorry for interrupting. No, 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 no. I, what's interesting about it to me in particular is that I really see it, and I think a lot of people see it as, as a blinding glimpse of the obvious, right? Which, which is, you know, stakeholders matter. <laughs> yeah, stakeholders matter. Um, but at the same time, acknowledging the obvious is, is a, a very, often a very effective way to start building credibility when you're in a reputation crisis, which, you know, arguably the business community in the, in the U.S., has been in for some time. I, you know, it made me think back to, um, this was at least 20 years ago. Um, I was working for a client, a chemical company that was citing, trying to cite a plant. And, uh, they, this was really during the, the rise of the environmental justice movement. And they knew that they were going to face, um, some serious pushback. And, the approach they took, which was relatively radical for its time, was stand up in the public meetings and say, thank you for coming. Um, you know, we know that we are only going to be able to build our facility here if you want us here. Yeah. And so our commitment is, is that we're going to do what needs to be done for you to welcome us into this community. Mm-hmm. And it had an enormous effect. It had an enormous effect. So again, that was another version of acknowledging you matter. Right. right. But, it, but it was so, it's a statement that at least gets you permission to go the next step. And I think that's what is valuable about the, the, the BRT statement. Now, the, yeah. the proof is going to be in, in what they do, in what the companies yeah. actually do to back that up. And some groups now, Karen, are, are saying, okay, you signed the statement. Okay, now I want to see you put your purpose to work. And some groups are beginning to challenge the 181 signatory to that. And I'm, I'm curious because I did have this question from a couple CEOs over the past month. If uh, a CEO came to you, now it would be depending on the company, of course, and said, should I sign this thing? What would you have said to her or him? It's a great question. Uh, You know, I think I would, I I don't see any, I don't see any significant damage really in terms of, in terms of what they're trying to achieve which is to start to build some, some public credibility. Um, I, I don't see any, any real harm in signing it, but I would at the same time encourage, 
I think, a company to do what a number of the companies are doing, including some that, that didn't sign, and that is to build your own company's platform. Because, you know, that, that commitment arise differently to, to different kinds of companies and industries. So, so it needs to be coupled with a, what does this mean to us and our stakeholders? Well, that's a, I'm glad to hear that you say that because that's exactly the advice that gave to the CEO. Excellent. Brilliant advice. <laughs> yeah. So one other thing that's sort of related, uh, you know, Mike said in the intro that you work in politics and, you know, clearly CEO jobs are political uh, today and, and facing into social concerns. And, you know, it really is, as the CEOs have become the role of a diplomat, a, you know, a public and uh, political and social diplomat in many ways. And we've seen CEO activism uh, on issues around human rights and LGBTQ rights, et cetera, become more prominent. Um, but we've also seen some stumble uh, among some companies. And employees in particular, in particular, you know, protesting where they see companies or CEOs uh, taking action that they're not comfortable with. Wayfair had protests about providing, um, uh, you know, some uh, sales and, and mattresses, et cetera, to the Ice Center Soul Cycle uh, with Stephen Ross and uh, hosting Trump at Trump fundraiser in the Hamptons. So. You know, some of this is a backlash to this idea of CEOs as uh, social activists. And so what do you tell clients who are thinking about taking a political or social stand on an issue? And what are the things they should think about first? Well, the ideal is not not to have to consider a particular stance in isolation. Uh, that, you know, th- this is so often how it goes, right, is that companies become aware that they're, that the expectations are changing because they, you know, get, get hit with, whether it's their employees or others, um, attacking them or taking different sides. Uh, so, first of all, the, the best approach is to sit down and have a plan, have a plan and have a structure. So, meaning put together a... A, a structure for issues and reputation management within the organization that, among other things, really helps the CEO make smart decisions when one of those situations hits. Um, that's that's right, so very important. thing on the fly, right? Exactly. So you're, you're, you're not doing it. Exactly. And, and, and I know... And I know you know, Mike, that, uh, you know, Oscar Munoz uh, of United has said publicly, you know, that on, when they have that situation with, with forcibly removing their passenger, that he wishes he had taken more time to to more strategically think through what, what the best approach would be. So building in that structure is really important. And then secondly, it, examining... The, the spectrum of political and social issues in a methodical way through that structure to say, you know, what might we want to be proactive on? You know, what is most tied to our brand promise? What's most tied to the expectations of us? And, if, and P.S., if we don't know what the expectations are of us, let's talk to people and find out. Let's do polling. Let's, you know, use other means of engaging with people. So I think those sorts of approaches in advance are are really going to be the key to being able to navigate these things, you know, in a, in a successful way. Yeah, no, I think one just advice. Mike, I was going to follow up and just ask one thing because <laughs> this CEO activism thing has sort of been a burr under my saddle for a while <laughs> for this reason. And Mike and I have talked about this on the crux previously is I think CEOs have taken the easy issues to speak out on, integration, visas, that kind of thing. And I always, when I talk to CEOs, I say, well, look, you know, you're raising expectations that you're going to do something on the tough ones. And for the most part, they haven't. Um, So, for example, uh, President Trump has said recently that he could, if he wishes, order uh, companies, U.S. companies to leave China. And this is the guy who's uh, complaining about socialism amongst members of Congress, right? 
Exactly. So, right. so that's, you know, I, I just, I, I, I worry about, or even on the tax cuts that corporations got, which they largely plowed into share buybacks instead of capital investments, which was the intention. You know, no one stood up and said, you know, look, I don't need a tax cut right now. Apple, Amazon, companies that are doing well. So what's your view on that on, again, raising expectations that CEOs are going to be the sort of public policy mavens or, or champions um, on more difficult issues? Yeah, there, it, it's, it is very perilous ground. I, I, I agree with you. Um, I, I, and I agree that that what we're seeing most today, other than the companies like like Patagonia that have have you know taken a, a very proactive stand on issues because it feeds in so directly to their brand and their and their stakeholder yeah. base. Um, I, you know, I, I I think it's you know it's shifting ground, and and I think you're right that most of them are really most companies. Are taking stands on, you know, I guess you you call them easy issues. Yeah, they're, they're issues. I would call them the less polarizing issues. Things like you know, <laughs> things like uh, empowerment of women and equal pay for equal work and and right. uh, in, inclusiveness and things like that. Um, but we care. I have a thought here. No, no I have a thought here. <laughs> I had a thought here. You're gonna have to. You're gonna have to edit this part. But no, no, no. Um, you can do it. Because I did have a thought, um, and I need to think of what it was. Um, oh, what I was gonna say was, all right. So, okay. the the less the less polarizing issues. But you know, think back several years ago. I thought it was really fascinating when uh, during the the debate over the bathroom bill in North Carolina. Right. right, the bill that would that requires that that people use the the bathroom uh, that relates to their uh, gender assigned at birth. There were some big companies uh, in North Carolina and and out that that took a stand against that bill, um, and you know not and big old line companies, not not the Starbucks of the world, um, and. Uh, they felt they felt that it was important, even though that can be a polarizing issue. In other words, there are people on both sides of that issue. Um, they really felt that it, they had a, it was a net benefit for them to plant their flag and say, um, you know, inclusivity, diversity, and inclusion is an incredibly important value for us and for our employees and for our stakeholders. Yeah. Although it's interesting, as you were citing off some of the issues that are uh, not as controversial, not as polarizing, uh, some of the things on that list, like equal pay, um, and some of the claims even in the environmental space, we end up seeing companies take a public position uh, in writing and in words, and it sets up an expectation that they're going to do certain things, uh, but sometimes it's eyewash. You know, sometimes they, uh, you know, we should probably be watching what they do rather than what they say. Um, and isn't there a cautionary tale in here for, for, for companies to avoid just jumping in just for the sake of jumping in, if they're not, if they're not actually going to do the work behind it. Well, here's what I think the key is, and and you're right. Of course, they they need to to walk the talk. There's no question. At the same time, they don't have to be perfect. It really depends on, in part, on when they're called out for something that is not in keeping with their promises. How do they deal with it? Um, you know, the, the public, you know, it, bottom line is the public doesn't expect perfection. <clears throat> the bottom line is the public doesn't expect perfection. They do expect integrity, particularly when things start to go sideways. 
So I think where you get in trouble is is where you raise some expectations, and then perhaps for legal liability reasons, uh, a company feels that it has to sort of pussyfoot around an issue when under other circumstances they would probably be willing to say, you know what, we didn't do that so well. Or yeah. we messed that one up, but we're we're gonna try really hard not to again. Yeah. That's really yeah. great advice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that kinda that kinda takes me in a slightly different direction in, in a space that you clearly have uh, real chops in and uh, you've been involved in some pretty high profile crises and cases through the years. You helped the city of Charlotte after a black man was shot by a police officer. You were hired by Barilla, the pasta company, as they faced criticism from the LGBTQ community uh, for a remark made by one of its executives. And you were hired by Dallas Hospital, Texas Health Presbyterian, after the first U.S. patient was diagnosed with the Ebola virus back in 2014. Uh, you are called into these kinds of situations. Are there some basic questions you ask? And one of the most common communications mistakes often that organizations make is that crisis first hit. I'll give you an interesting example <laughs> on the, the the Ebola situation at um, at Texas Health Presbyterian Dallas. Uh, the, and I'm, I'm not saying anything that isn't, hasn't already been publicly discussed, but the, the hospital, you know, which was facing an extreme de facto crisis, there had been, you know, the first diagnosis of Ebola in the U.S., uh, and, uh, their patient, uh, was misdiagnosed and, and, and died, uh, and then two of their nurses, uh, were also diagnosed but but survived. We were, you know, we were brought in um, shortly after their the their patient had had passed away, and the the hospital had had gotten itself into a really bad place already uh, with the local media. Um, you know, through its heart was in the right place, uh, but it was it was grappling with this. With this very large crisis, and that they needed to deal with clinically and administratively, and and communications, um, I think suffered a bit for it, and their relationship with the with the media and other stakeholders really was was in pretty bad shape. And the first thing we did when we came in was to say, all right, we should get in a room and essentially spend twelve hours level setting and saying, all right, let's map this out. What are the facts? What do we know? What do we not know? Mm-hmm. Right? right? Who are the stakeholder groups that we, that are going to be important to this as we move forward? And what does each of them need to know or hear in order to maintain confidence in this organization? Uh, and I should say know, hear, or see, because we weren't just talking about communications. We were talking about action as well. And then yeah. what is our, based on all of that too, what's our story? I mean, we, of course, the, the hospital was, was reacting to questions, which were many were very difficult and even some unanswerable questions, but they didn't really have a story to tell from their point of view about what was going on here and what their role in it was. And that really helped set the stage for a really good strategic communications program. Uh, the first thing, for example, was that, uh, you know, they were absolutely willing to acknowledge uh, that they had made mistakes, that the, the patient had been misdiagnosed. And, and they felt horrible, horrific about it, um, and wanted to do what they could to try to make things right. That had not come through the media at all. Um, and it was a very important part of their story. And so it, it, it enabled them, for example, to when they sort of emerged from that to do, to do the, the reboot, for that to be a really important message for them. And for people to hear that really helped change perceptions of, of the hospital and, and its credibility. Yeah. 
Well, a lot of these cases are about how we manage information. And Mm -hmm. it seems that oftentimes in a crisis, people want to hold on to information. We saw a little bit of that in in the Charlotte case, which, of course, you and I worked on a little bit together. Um, Tell us a little bit more about, particularly nowadays with the Internet, with other ways to get at information, um, uh, why it's important that, uh, that transparency and the need for information at critical points in time um, play how that plays out in some of these crisis instances. Well, the expectation of transparency is 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 a real uh, challenge to to corporations and 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 indeed. Uh, there are more than ever, I think the public uh, is expecting companies and other organizations to, you know, to be as frank and, and transparent as possible. Um, the, the, you know, the bottom line for that really is that companies today have to embrace transparency because if you don't, it's going to be forced on you anyway. Right? There are too many ways, to your point, there are too many ways for information to become public. Um, whether, you know, you look at something like, uh, you look at something like the, the, the Fisher-Price uh, recall of their, of their baby rocker. Um, Fisher-Price did not want to do a recall. They, they pushed against doing a recall uh, a lot. And they had, uh, what had been disclosed is that the, the product was, uh, was associated with a certain number of deaths. I can't remember what the number was. Maybe it was 90. It was like 30, uh, yeah, since 2009. Well, that, I think that was the ultimate. Wasn't that the ultimate number that came out with the yeah. public number? Right. right. There was a public number, um, and, and, but the, the actual number that, the CPSC had been looking at was something like 32 or 36. That yeah. number came out as as one would should expect that it would, uh, and and greatly increased the pressure on the company. And then it becomes uh, then it becomes the cover up, right? right. The old right. the old maxim of it's not the crime, it's the cover up. But that that supercharges supercharges yeah. public anger. Yeah, well, it's like the biggest thing in, in uh, the kind of data breach was probably Target, at least in terms of getting attention. And yet that wasn't brought forward initially by the company until some blogger posted, right? That's right. A very capable blogger uh, yeah. who, again, it should not be unexpected that that bloggers and reporters who are closely following these sorts of issues uh, may well have access to information that you don't want them to have. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying you have to, you have to release everything. There's always some information that is true sure. proprietary or for other reasons you can't release it. Um, but even when you're there, I, explaining why you can't release it is a form right. of, it's sort of non-transparent transparency. You know, to yeah, say, look, at least, at least we can't share this that, information, right? Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Well, and he, no, I said providing status uh, to a, a, an ongoing situation is important. And the other thing that, that I want to come back to on this message of transparency is it was so such a big deal at the time, and it was one of the first times it had happened. Uh, was uh, the council ultimately taken in Charlotte to release police body cams. And yet, you know, there was some thought that, well, people aren't going to like what they, they're going to see. Family members are going to be upset. Other people are going to be upset. And yet, ultimately, it was the release of the body cam that the police were wearing that seemed to uh, re- reduce some of the tension and stop uh, the rioting in the streets. I think that's right, and 
you know, tra- transparency in, in a way, transparency is a, is a, is a character, an issue of character, right? You can look at it, you can look at a crisis or any organization as a test of character and being open and straightforward and, and, and respecting stakeholder audiences is seen as a basic, you know, a, a basic desirable character is seen as a basic expectation of just about any organization these days. And that's why doing it early and not doing it grudgingly or waiting for somebody else to tell your news uh, is the best idea. It's difficult. I, I don't mean to, I don't mean to trivialize how difficult it can be for legal reasons, for other reasons. Uh, it's not easy, but I, I think I think companies can can go a long way if they start the discussions by saying, "Let's assume that all of this information that we know will become public." Yeah. So that now what? Now what do we do? Exactly, the transparency is an issue of character, and it is okay sometimes to say we don't know or. Um, uh, we can't discuss that for these reasons and be very specific about those reasons and not hide behind generalities. And this leads me to something I've discussed in my classroom at BU, and of course it's the crisis issue of the past year, which is, is Boeing, a great company, but the problem's obviously with the 737 MAX. And you know, Boeing is in a very highly regulated industry um, and the FAA is very strict about not talking while investigations are ongoing. And so Boeing was sort of tight-lipped. But at the same time, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Atlantic Magazine, et cetera, had very compelling uh, graphics, videos, uh, descriptions of what exactly happened with those two airplanes uh, and what it might have happened in the cockpit even. Uh, in a very visual and engaging way. So while Boeing is saying nothing, these uh, uh, you know journalists are telling people who care about this issue probably exactly what did happen. So how, if you're the CCO in, in one of these organizations, and without being specific to Boeing, that's facing a product issue, product problem, uh, you know, how do you manage that sort of, um, fight between the general counsel and what you know will be a truly authentic and transparent approach to dealing with other good stakeholders. Well, Boeing. Let me talk about Boeing specifically, and just just okay. enough to say sure. that to say to say that they really muffed it. Um, yeah. and, um, but. And, and I and I think yeah, uh, I, I mean, and I think I think they I think in their case, and I don't know, I wasn't I wasn't on the inside of that one, but I, but it does seem that at the very least, um, they they were complacent about the stakeholders that they considered to be their most important stakeholders, right? They are a B two B company, so the airlines. Uh, you know, the, you know, the, the FAA, you know, early on in that situation, they knew that nobody wanted to create a panic, right? None of, none of those folks wanted to create a panic. They didn't want to overreact. Um, and they, but I, I think they underestimated what is not a typical stakeholder group for them, which is buyers, right? The public stakeholders who, you know, who, who put great pressure on their customers. And, and on the government. Um, so I, I think that's a testimony in part to, again, really thinking through who are the people who are really going to make or break this situation, including the people who may be exerting pressure on on our customers. Um, so so I think there's that. The you know the bigger question of of uh, sort of harmonizing legal strategy and communication strategy. Uh, is uh, is a tough one, but the best way to get there is uh, 
First, to have a structure in place, right? To have a crisis management structure in place where all of the parties are at the table. You know, very often companies try to do this by a game of operator where the communications team comes up with a message, they send it over to the legal team, which redlines the heck out of it and says, heck no. And then it goes back to the communications team and, and, you know, you end up playing ping pong for long periods of time. That's not the way to do it. It's to get everybody at the table and say, all right, what's for each of our disciplines? Well, what's the the company's end game here? Um, and, yes. and what, what are the strategies for each of, and it's, and it's not just legal and communications. It may be manufacturing. It may be, uh, it may be customer relations. It may be, you know, various disciplines and, yes. and start to work out common ground. And, and you can, and, and to me, well, and I can't say you always can. There are times when the strategies are so divergent. Uh, that the CEO has to make a call and right. and decide which way to go. But very often, for me, the the the, the most important tool for relationships between communications and legal is the question why. Right. And for both sides to to say to each other, not just okay, yeah, this is this is what we need to do. But to, to delve more deeply, not in a confrontational way, but to say, all right, why is that? What are you trying to avoid or what are you trying to achieve? Yeah, we'll and, exactly. And very often that leads to agreements, you know, for say communications will say, oh, I get it. You don't want to use a word that implies this. Well, suppose we use this word. And legal will say, oh, well, that's fine. So that's the only way to really get there. Yeah, and I and I think you're so right. And, and I don't know how at this point Boeing restores trust in the group. The point you made about people who fly on these airplanes, how they restore trust in people getting on a 737 MAX when they're approved to fly. I mean, that is going to be a massive, massive uh, challenge for the, for the company. And... Uh, you know, that's, that's their workhorse. That's the plane that, uh, you know, Boeing has invested so much in. And uh, to your point, what can be known will be known. Uh, and, boy, they've got a big challenge ahead of them. Uh, well, I think outside, don't you think outside expert validation, and not just experts, but advocates, outside validation is, is going to be the key because they have lost that credibility. That's right. Absolutely. That's right. Um, and, 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 go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and, and whether it's, whether it's Boeing or whether it's Fisher Price, you know, you, you have to realize that you, know, you don't get credit for doing the right thing as a last resort. Absolutely. Time you know, what, yeah. what you want to do, what you want to do in that early planning process is, is ask yourselves, if the pressure got incredibly intense on this issue against us, what would we be willing to do? And then right. consider doing that as a first resort, not a last one. Yeah, that's right. And talking about timing, no in this case. Go ahead, Mike. Uh, no, I would say that timing being what it is, I know that uh, you've got to go, Karen, uh, but I wanted to ask one last question. And, and that is, you've, you've counseled uh, a lot of different industries, a lot of different CEOs, heads of various organizations. Um, and as you look across the whole scheme from, you know, changing social norms, uh, changing public perceptions, uh, this battle between uh, science and emotion, um, what's the biggest reputation crisis facing corporate America today? And, and, and what, how do we need to think about that? I think it's the generational divide or divides. You know, there, there, have, been, there have been polls and studies that, that have, have come out showing that, for example, younger 
Americans, uh, and to some extent, this is being mirrored across the world. But certainly, certainly in America, younger consumers put less importance on on values like patriotism uh, and having children uh, than than the older generations do, and and that certainly is true when it comes to their expectations of companies. Right, the younger younger consumers are, the more likely they are to say that I expect a company that I work for or a company that I buy from to, you know, to be, to play an active role in society, to make society better and to take a stand. And that's the extent to which companies can do that. And uh, it is really still in flux. So I think and of course, not only is it in flux, but it's going to vary so severely between you know the, the brand expectations for you know for a, a large financial institution are always going to be different than for a, a company that makes you know tennis shoes, uh, and and so navigating that as well. And and I think the answer, the only answer for companies, especially as the fans keep shifting, is engagement with their key audiences, with, with their stakeholders that matter most to them. Not just talking at them, but talking with them. And whether it's the younger consumers, whether it's with the baby boomers or older, um, whether it is polling, whether it, it's uh, advisory committees, whether it's, it's other sorts of methods for engaging directly with the people who are most important to you, that that is going to give you the the real time input that that helps you helps you move forward and make decisions. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Karen, I know you're this. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Mike. Say that. Say that again, and I'll ask Karen the question real quickly after you sign off. I stepped on. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Karen, for joining us on the cracks. Thank you, Karen. I, I know you got to run. But I do want to, and I'll probably just use this in my class. <laughs> What's the best, what, what would be the one thing you would advise students who want to work in crisis and issues management? What piece of advice would you give them? In my mind, crisis management, crisis communication is one of the most, if not the most, rewarding areas of communications and public relations. It, it, you develop a relationship with your clients that's, that's very special. I mean, you are really in the trenches with them when they're facing, you know, sometimes you know, deal breaker situations for their companies. And that gives you a lot of responsibility, but it also really gives you a feeling of, of making a real difference uh, for a company, and and that's that that's wonderful, uh, and I think that's what attracts a lot of people to crisis management. The, the flip side of it is, it is not a discipline that lends itself to work life balance. Uh, it, it you know it's of course public relations is a is a customer service business in in any of its you know iterations, but. When you're doing crisis, you know, clients are, are paying you, uh, or if you're working inside a corporation, um, you know, your, your bosses are, are employing you to help them sleep at night. And in fact, you will find I have had some clients, the most rewarding is when clients actually say, I got the first good night's sleep last night that I've had at night. <laughs> Anytime you use my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the Red Cross here. <laughs> there's, 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 there's a crisis. It's worth it. <laughs> Thank you for your time. Thanks, guys. Bye. 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 Bye.
thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.